G'day folks and welcome, I'm Chris Baker and I'm TJ Stedman and you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. So today we're talking about God, that's what Elohim means, right? And hopefully I said it right, Tim? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, y- y- yes and no. Actually, it, it does mean God, it does. The, the problem is that Elohim means God or other gods or a whole bunch of other stuff, so it can be a little confusing. Let's start with what most Christians think about when we say God. God is the Bible, the Creator, Heavenly Father, the Holy Trinity, the Most High. But we have a problem there. I can show you in some of those pagan texts that we referenced back in Episode 2 of the podcast, and in other texts as well, that titles like that get used of other gods too, even Trinity. Yes, that is confusing. So other gods get those same titles, but... They can't be the same God with a capital G. Our God is better than all of them, isn't he, with a capital H? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) The God of the Bible (laughs) is unique in so many ways that make him the greatest. So aren't all those other gods fake anyway? (laughs) Well, our God is unique, and he is uniquely placed above all gods, as the Bible says. But if those other gods were fake, then the Bible would be saying that God is better than, well, nothing. That's not exactly high praise. So let's begin by taking the Bible seriously when it says that there are other gods. Uh, And now we'll focus on what makes the God of the Bible the greatest of all, the only one worthy of our worship. So God has unique attributes that make him in particular better than all other gods. It can be a bit of a puzzle uh, working our way through the scripture to identify them if we're not already familiar. Uh, Partly because God's existence is assumed in the Bible. It's not argued or justified. Uh, God doesn't have an origin story. No one's ever going to write a prequel about where God came from or who made him or what it was like being God as a kid growing up. You know, God is unchanging. Uh, I really enjoyed our episode about uh, prequels when we started the show. <laughs> yes. Um, but that, that's one we're not going to see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah. So in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And That's such a wonderful way to refer to himself. God says, I am who I am. I think that's really worth reflecting on. And uh, to be honest, I haven't got the time to do it justice because I'd like to just talk about that for hours. But Mm -hmm. uh, what I love about it is what it means for us in its most simplest form. I am who I am means my word is matched by my actions. Right, you can trust God um, because He is true to the very core. You know, there's uh, there's no distinction between what He says and what He does. I am who I am means also as above, so below. What God decrees in heaven is going on earth okay because he's the sovereign god uh, and I, I just absolutely love that you know there's no other 
uh, other god known to man that can say that. Now in uh, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, for the ESV, it says, uh, God is not man that he should lie, or a son mm-hmm. of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And that just uh, really reinforces that idea that God is, at his very core, true and faithful. And, yeah, that should just be a tremendous uh, reassurance to us, especially in times where we uh, are in doubt and when we see change in the world around us. Malachi 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So God appeals to his eternal and unchanging nature to be a reassurance to his people. I've got another one here from James, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Love that verse. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? I think that's uh, one of my wife's favourites as well. Yeah, not changing means that God didn't change from being young to being old or being non-existent to existing. He is self-existent and uncreated. In Isaiah 45, verse 12, it says, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. We start to see some little hints here, because uh, who is this host? I mean, is, is God talking to balls of gas in the sky? Because uh, why? They're like insane people talk to balls of gas in the sky. Uh, you know, if this is <laughs> this is... God, and we're supposed to take this seriously, then he's actually talking about the host of heaven. And we're now getting into uh, some of the subject matter we're going to touch on shortly. Second Peter 3, 5. I love this. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Mm. By God's word. That's just amazing. That's something that uh, in future episodes we're going to explore. Just... Uh, how that all works so that's going to be fascinating stick around for those uh those episodes coming up as we get further into creation god has some other particular attributes as well he is all-knowing and in hebrews 4 13 it says nothing in all creation is hidden from god's sight everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account that's both the great uh comfort for us and and also uh, an encouragement to make sure that we are uh, I guess living circumspectly if I may uh, be obscure with my language Um, you know other gods have limited wisdom you don't find other gods in in, in the other uh, pagan religions and stuff that know everything you know you can trick the other gods you can keep things secret from Interesting. them. Interesting. Kind of, yeah, mm. yeah. So this is one of those unique attributes. And uh, another one is being ever-present. Uh, in Psalm 139, uh, verses 7 to 10, again, this is one I really love. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. That's great because it doesn't just talk about geography there. It's got that cosmic language, you know, it's talking about the heavens and the depths. Literally, it's it's talking about, you know, if you go to the the place where Israelites imagined where where God had his sort of his, his domain in the unseen uh, realm, or even if they went to the land of the dead in Sheol, or you know, in the bottom of the abyss, you, you can't get away from the, mm. the presence of God. And uh, the other, well, one other <laughs> great thing about our God, the God of the Bible, is that He is all powerful. Uh, in Jeremiah 32, verse 17, O Lord God, you, you yourself made the heavens and earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. And again, there's a contrast to the uh, gods of the nations because none of them are omnipotent. They, they're all limited in some respect. There's things that they can't do. And uh, we don't find that with the God of the Bible. Now, here's where it starts to get interesting. God is unique and incomparable. In Exodus 15:11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And there we have uh, o, o Lord. So in the original, that's, that's going to be Yahweh there. When you see Lord in all caps, that's... Yeah. Generally, an indication that divine name is being uh, reproduced there, just uh, in the YHWH. I think we uh, we talked about that in the first episode about the name of God. We did. Uh, so yeah, that's something to keep your eyes open for as you read. And and then you have among the gods, other gods. <laughs> there, there they are. What what's that? And then we have uh, Psalm eighty six verse eight. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord nor are there any works like yours. Again, more gods. It doesn't really make sense to say there is none like you among the non-gods, right there. It says there is none like you. So at that point, you're sort of thinking, okay, there's just one God. But then it says among the gods, O Lord. (laughs) So now God is in the presence of are the gods and they don't compare to him this is some interesting stuff to keep in mind and uh then we have psalm 82 verse 1 god has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment so there's some very interesting concepts there and basically you're saying that even though God has these unique attributes. There are other gods in scriptures, and they are also called Elohim. Is that right? Elohim might be translated as capital G-O-D. Put another way, Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. Yeah, as always, context is everything. Usually Elohim means the biblical God, but the exceptions can be hard to spot. If we look at the different examples of usage of Elohim, we can get a better idea of what the word means. One usage, uh, the most common one you'll find, is uh, where Elohim is uh, capitalized 
if you're uh, reading a transliteration where you get the Hebrew kind of spelled out in words you can read in, in English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Elohim with a capital E. That is, that is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. That occurs mm-hmm. over a thousand times in Scripture. And that's kind of used like we might use mum or dad. Like, I don't call your dad, dad. <laughs> right. Um, you know, right? When, when I talk to your dad, you know, it's, it's, it's Mr. Bather. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. When, when, when you talk to my dad, it's Mr. Stedman. You it's know, right. I don't call your dad, dad but then I can call my dad, dad. And when I do that, mm. it's a capital D when I talk to my dad, right? When mm. I call him dad, that's a, that's a capital D. When I say yep. this, you know, this is my dad. That's kind of the way I, I think about how, uh, how we use Elohim most of the time where we find it, right? Uh, so you can talk about other gods and it's not the capital G, like this is the special you know, my God, <laughs> right? But Elohim in the case of Yahweh is kind of special because the word Elohim is actually plural. Okay, that's weird, isn't it? You can tell it's plural because it's got the little I-M on the end, which we pronounce as im, and mm-hmm. it's only when we are uh, talking about Yahweh that we have it in a singular application, despite the plurality of the noun so that might be a little confusing until you realize that in hebrew there's all kinds of ways to indicate that you're talking about a plural it's not just having a a plural ending on the on the noun Uh, you can have plural in your verbs and uh, there's all kinds of ways to demonstrate that in the context you're talking about uh, multiple things so then when you have elohim in that context and all the associated languages in the plural then you realize that it's saying god's there and it's not talking about the god of the bible so when the grammar is singular and you still have elohim now we're talking about god we're talking about you know the god of the bible yahweh right right oh yeah, it can be a little technical, it's a little confusing, um, but it's it's worth just sort of keeping that uh, knowledge in the background because as we go through our study of the primeval history, there's some interesting occasions where it pays to have an eye on this. That's something to look forward to later. Uh, prepare to be bemused and befuddled uh, by my <laughs> terrible explanations of... Uh, <laughs> You're doing a good right. job. There you have it. <laughs> Try my best. Now, there's another uh, application of Elohim, uh, which we looked at already, the, the members of Yahweh's heavenly council. Okay, So we talked about the divine council in Psalm 82. What is that? For a lot of people, uh, they might be completely unfamiliar with that concept. Have a read of Psalm 82, and... It should be quite clear from the the plain text, and this isn't one of those tricky ones where it, it doesn't mean what it says. Like it really does. It it literally means what it says. Uh, there are other gods. God is in charge of them, and this is uh, how ancient people understood that the workings of the whole world 
were undertaken. You know, they were gods responsible for different things, and Yahweh, the Most High God, uh, supreme over all of them, had charge of everything and was uh, sovereign. This divine council idea gets uh, developed throughout Scripture, and yeah, a lot of people don't talk about it these days. Uh, it really dropped out of favour when people, uh, I guess, kind of overreacted to uh, some of the pagan pushback against monotheism. And, and you know, we we do worship and serve only one God. And, and you know, I want to be clear about that. Uh, there's only one worthy of worship, and that's why we started by talking about the unique attributes of the God of the Bible, okay? because mm. there's no place for worship of any of these others. Um, there's yeah, absolutely no uh, indication in the Bible that that is tolerated at all, and mm -hmm. uh, we need to be uh, aware of that. Yeah, I mentioned... Uh, the other gods, the gods of foreign nations. That's another application where you'll find Elohim. So uh, as an example in First Kings 11.33, I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David Solomon's father did. Yeah, that's an interesting passage because you've actually got these other gods and they have names and stuff and they have places where they live and where they act and where those people worship them. It's now getting a bit harder to say, oh, well, they're not real, they don't exist. I mean, God doesn't need to defend himself against other gods if they don't exist. <laughs> why, why talk about it and say, oh, well, you know, they've, they've, they've forsaken me and worship these other gods if, they, if they're not even there, right? <laughs> Demons. This is interesting because the language barrier between the Old Testament and the New Testament really comes to the fore here. Demons are kind of hard to pin down in the text uh, and, and to define clearly without doing a whole heap of background research. I, I do go into it a lot in my book, so if you want to uh, dive into the, the book for that, it's really going to clarify all of this stuff a lot better than what we're going over now. But anyway, uh, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 17 is they sacrificed to false gods, which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. So did you pick up there this plural and then the singular? <laughs> and mm. if you're just reading the text, it's, it's Elohim, which are not Elohim. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the same word appears there. Again, it's it goes into that Hebrew grammar and, and knowing how the structure and the particular forms uh, of each word indicate uh, plurality or singularity, as the case may be. The term demons uh, in this uh, comes from the the Greek Old Testament uh, because they use the word daemonian. It's kind of as close as Greek gets to specific bad spirits. <laughs> the the uh, Hebrew vocabulary is actually a lot better, but even the Hebrew borrows things from other languages and in Hebrew you get shadim uh, so where it says they sacrificed to false gods shadim from Akkadian 
Shadu, uh, which means territorial spirits. Now, going back to territorial spirits, that's actually more to do with these gods of foreign nations I was talking about earlier. Okay, so they're a bit different to the kind of uh, unclean spirits that we find in the New Testament. But because we're reading Greek in the New Testament and they don't have such a, a vocabulary for different kinds of spirits and whatnot, you basically just have angels and demons and the, the angels are the good ones and the demons are the bad ones. Uh, we have the problem typically of trying to read the Old Testament the same way, like if it's a demon, it's bad, and if it's an angel, it's good. But in the Old Testament, you will find angels, specific angels, you know, referred to as the sons of God, and they're doing bad things sometimes, right? So it's not really necessarily clear from the terminology what their moral orientation is. Uh, for example... Mm. Uh, King Saul gets uh, tormented by what the text says is an evil spirit from the Lord, right? So, I mean, <laughs> yes, making sense of that stuff, you know, that, that, that can be problematic, yeah. you know. You've got to, uh, you've got to really dive into the, the terminology and, and try and disambiguate it uh, correctly because, yeah, the general parlance that you get today of, you know, just angels and demons, good guys and bad guys, doesn't really cut it. Uh, as I say, a lot of this is explained in a lot more clarity in my book, and there are plenty of other books about this as well. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not saying anything that uh, isn't backed up by uh, any competent scholar. You've also got, here's an interesting one, the spirits of the human dead. So uh, I mentioned Saul earlier. Here's another episode with King Saul, and it's from First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 28 and verse 13. The king said to her, that's the uh, they call it the witch of Endor in some translations, uh, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a god coming up out of the earth. That is an interesting one because we get further into that story and then over the next few verses, that God, that Elohim, turns out to be uh, the actual prophet Samuel. Um, basically, not exactly back from the dead. It's kind of like his ghost or something, right? So Samuel himself, and, and Saul identifies him, recognizes who he is. So that's a bit crazy because now we've got, you know, a, a dead person called an Elohim. Oh, another one, we've got angels. So in uh, Genesis 35, verse 7, and there he, that is Jacob, built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now, earlier in that text, uh, it actually said that an angel had appeared to Jacob. Right. Jacob wrestled with an angel, and the angel was overcome. Mm -hmm. Blue sky. You too. <laughs> um. Nice. Yes, we both are. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, we we have this angel that gets called God. What does all this tell us then about the word God? God with the small g. Uh, so God or gods, uh, terms usually derived from Elohim in the Old Testament, but 
we need to be aware that other spirits might be Elohim too. Elohim are not necessarily categorically unique like Yahweh is, you know, one of a kind. Elohim are not necessarily all-knowing like Yahweh is. Elohim are not necessarily ever-present or all-powerful or even embodied like the way that we humans are embodied. There's, a, there's an exception there for, for Jesus Christ, but uh, that's, that's an entirely different situation. Elohim are not necessarily heavenly or earthly. Uh, Elohim belong to the realm of spirits. And demons as unclean spirits, here's a little distinction that we didn't flesh out earlier when I was talking about demons. Uh, when you get into the New Testament, in the New Testament, you'll often come across this phrase, unclean spirits. Uh, yes. Those are probably best classified as demons, even some of the other things called demons aren't actually demons. Uh, <laughs> we don't have those uh, unclean spirits referred to as Elohim. But then uh, we, we don't get the Hebrew terminology in the New Testament. So, yeah, there's this ambiguity there. Uh, always check your translations, make sure you're getting the terminology correct. Now, Elohim, as presented in Genesis 1, is the God who is head of all gods. The plural form is not there to communicate trinity, which we do affirm, but it tells of God's sovereignty over his counsel. See, when we get Elohim, that's like, you know, he's the head of this group. So he represents all of them, right? As much as we do believe in the, the Trinity and affirm that, where we get uh, the doctrine of Trinity doesn't come from the fact that uh, Elohim is a plural term. That's not really how that works, uh, grammatically speaking. But uh, God is sovereign over his counsel, and uh, I like the wording in, uh, in First Enoch, actually. It said, the Lord of Spirits. Uh, in the biblical canon, God of gods, he is the most high. But where some scriptures say El Elyon, God most high, Genesis 1 is telling us immediately to disregard all other gods. Don't even think of them. There's only one creator, and that is the point. <laughs> Absolutely. So that clears up a few things. Thank you very much, Tim, and it tells us a lot about who god is relative to the other spiritual uh entities in the bible and that's probably a good place to leave our study for now when we come back next time we'll start digging into creation properly and get a better idea of what things were like back when all of this began but for now it's time for giant questions if you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else something you found in your bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large here's how you do it head to the website giantanswers.com where you can get the blog get feedback connect through the socials ask questions and get answers send me an email at giantanswers.com i personally receive all your mail and i will try to get to all of it i love hearing from you especially if i can help you get answers to your giant questions are you ready with giant answers i hope so always ready always okay. ready okay after yeah, a lot of study, I, a lot of careful. I actually go away and study for weeks, and then I come back and say I'm ready. That's what I you're do. A, you're a very learned man. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I have a question from Matt, a reader of your book, Answers to Giant Questions, and a follower of our work here, who uh, incidentally left a wonderful review of the book on Amazon. So thank you very much, Matt, from uh, Tim and myself. So he asks, what about megalithic, I love that word, what about megalithic structures? Who built them and why did they build them? Well, that's that's a very broad question, but a good one. Uh, by the way, hey, Matt, great question. Uh, let's pick an example to narrow it down uh, because, yeah, there's there, there are megalithic structures all over the world and there's all kinds and all sorts of different ones. And uh, I thought, well, I, I can't really address that entire scope of, yeah, everything in the world, but I'll have a go at, at one of these, all right? So... Uh, I'll start with a quick little quote because I want to talk about the Temple of Jupiter for a moment. I'm going to quote Wikipedia for those of you who haven't heard of the Temple of Jupiter to give you an idea uh, what it is. So the Temple of Jupiter is a colossal Roman temple, the largest of the Roman world, situated at the Baalbek complex in Heliopolis, uh, Syriaca, modern Lebanon. The temple served as an oracle and was dedicated to Jupiter Heliopolitanus. There we go. Well done. You, you Got did that it. out eventually. <laughs> mm. uh, it is not known who commissioned or designed the temple, nor exactly when it was constructed. Work probably began around 16 BC and was nearly complete by about AD 60. It is situated at the western end of the great court of Roman Heliopolis on a broad platform of stone raised another 7 metres or 23 feet above the huge stones of the foundation, three of which are among the heaviest blocks ever used in a construction. It was the biggest temple dedicated to Jupiter in all the Roman Empire. The columns were 30 metres high, with a diameter of nearly 2.5 metres, the biggest in the classical world. It took three centuries to create this colossal temple complex. All right, so that's the end of our Wikipedia quote. We'll talk a little bit about what might have been going on there. Cranes were employed by the Romans of the day, and a single crane operated by a single operator could lift three tons. Obviously, this is all just mechanical stuff. They don't have engines and yep. hydraulics and all the rest of that. Right. This so they're doing this with, with levers and pulleys and, you know, rope and wheels and, and that kind of thing. And it's all manpower. Or, you know, sometimes they'd harness animals to uh, turn a winch. Right. So that kind of thing. Uh, nothing too sophisticated, but still quite impressive uh, for, for one man to be able to lift three tons like that. It's pretty cool. Multiple cranes used together could achieve greater capacities, and the heaviest documented lifts of the classical period were in the vicinity of 300 tons by this means, although there was an obelisk brought from Egypt to Rome that weighed 455 tons. Wow. Uh, capable of some impressive feats back in the day. There is no evidence of human technology at the time that was capable of moving or much less lifting. The three 800-ton stones in the centre of the Baalbek uh, site, known as the Baalbek Trilithon, or three stones, the blocks are situated on top of smaller 300-ton stone blocks. Only 300-ton, you know, they're the, they're the little ones, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and they form part of the uh, retaining wall in the side of the foundation platform. Now, scientific analysis has confirmed that all of the stones employed in the original construction from top to bottom date to the same period, despite the differences in appearance, 
size and construction methods likely. Three more megalithic <laughs> stones are still located in the quarry from which the other stones were removed. These are even bigger, ranging between 1,200 to 1,600 tonnes, and they were never used. The giant question we face now is, what happened to force the abandonment of construction as planned with these colossal stones, leaving them where they lay in favour of much smaller stones from that time on? Speculation alert here. Things are going to get weird. Okay, these are my thoughts, and uh, I'm just saying that up front because uh, I don't want you all to get uh, too carried away on this, but it makes a lot of sense to me, and I would be surprised if got some merit. Okay, but I mean, what I'm telling you, biblical stuff, you know, I, I don't mind telling you while well, it just comes from the Bible. Uh, yeah, this is, this is me riffing a little bit here. All right, so uh, a clue might be found back at the quarry because one of the cut stones was significantly cracked at the time it was being cut. And this would indicate the possibility of seismic activity at the site, which resulted in the break. Given that the construction commenced in 16 BC and was mostly complete by AD 60, and the fact that the largest stones are located above the base levels, this would indicate that the gigantic stones at the quarry were slated for installation sometime around AD 30, by my estimation. I'm not an expert on this, just a theory. We still haven't touched on exactly how these stones were moved, and for that, I'm going to introduce a text that might be of interest. I don't know if you've heard of any of this before, but there is written material that comes from roughly the same time period or shortly thereafter, although precise dating is hard to ascertain, much like the temple itself. The Testament of Solomon is a Gnostic work, and that's, that's why I sort of issue a bit of caution with this, okay, because Gnosticism is bad, okay? <laughs> uh, written in Greek, uh, estimated to originate at the earliest, from late in the first century to, uh, at the latest, the early fifth century AD. It is uh, pseudepigraphical, that is, uh, it's attributed to Solomon, but not written by him. You know, the, the author claims to be Solomon. Uh, it post-dates the New Testament, but despite the incorporation of some Christian elements, it's not a Christian text. It probably arose from within a sect of the Essenes who had a particular interest in naming spirits and observing astrology. Interestingly, the historian Josephus noted that he had witnessed the use of certain incantations like those ascribed to Solomon when he wrote in the 2nd century AD. Clearly, if Josephus was not referring to this late Greek manuscript, he was evidently familiar with some early source material that may have actually originated with Solomon himself. It's just something that we don't know because uh, we'll have to find those manuscripts if they exist and then go, ah, that's where it's coming from. The text details the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem under King Solomon. In this mystical text, Solomon gains power over demons by means of a magic ring obtained from God. Solomon uses this power to compel demons to assist men in the temple's construction. Wow. So this is some crazy stuff. I'm going to give you some quotes from some of the chapters. It's a very long thing, so yeah, there's no way I was going to read the whole thing. But uh, these come from digital version of the complete book of Enoch, the standard English version by Jay Winter. And as part of the bonus material, it's a translation of this Testament of Solomon. So that's where this is coming from. 
so a quote from chapter 33. So I questioned him and said, and by what name? And he answered, this is the demon talking, that of the archangel Azale. And I summoned the archangel Azale and set a seal on the demon and commanded him to seize great stones and toss them up to the workmen on the higher parts of the temple. And being compelled, the demon began to do what he was bidden to do. Chapter 65, I therefore Solomon prayed to my God and I invoked the angel of whom Enepsigos spoke to me and used my seal. And I sealed her with a triple chain and placed beneath her the fastening of the chain. I used the seal of God and the spirit prophesied to me saying, this is what thou King Solomon doest to us. But after a time, thy kingdom shall be broken and again in season this temple shall be driven asunder, and all Jerusalem shall be undone by the king of the Persians and Medes and Chaldeans. And the vessels of this temple which thou makest shall be put to servile uses of the gods, and along with them all the jars in which thou dost shut us up shall be broken by the hands of men, and then we shall go forth in great power hither and thither, and be disseminated all over the world, and we shall lead astray the inhabited world for a long season until the Son of God is stretched upon the cross. For never before doth arise a king like unto him, one frustrating us all, whose mother shall not have contact with man. Who else can receive such authority over spirits except he, whom the first devil will seek to tempt, but will not prevail over? The number of his name is 644, which is Emmanuel. Wherefore, O King Solomon, thy time is evil, and thy years short and evil, and to thy servant shall thy kingdom be given. Okay, some very interesting stuff there, isn't it? Uh, and this is why I say, like, you got to treat this stuff with a bit of suspicion because uh, <laughs> it, it, it's it's pretty clear that it was written later. You know, after these things have been done. You know, after we've had Jesus and yeah, um, you know, so, so these kind of things are sort of uh, yeah written as if they were prophecies of something but they've, they've been written after the fact uh well that, that is unless there's any evidence to the contrary but uh so far nobody's come up with an early version of this manuscript that would actually come before christ you know if we could find something like that that, that would demonstrate uh perhaps that it actually was a, a genuine prophecy but yeah you know here we are listening to the words of demons in a gnostic text so uh just yeah take it for what it is <laughs> chapter 70 and there came before my face another enslaved having obscurely the form of a man with gleaming eyes and bearing in his hand a blade and i asked who art thou but he answered i am a lascivious spirit engendered of a giant man who died in the massacre in the time of the giants now that's interesting uh, on a number of levels mainly because the time of the giants uh is is ambiguous i mean are we talking uh, in the days of enoch perhaps maybe later in the days of noah afterwards like say nimrod's day or perhaps during the conquest of canaan it's a bit vague uh the the massacre again could have been any of those times but you know we have this reference to a, a spirit that has come from a giant uh, so that yeah that is very interesting uh moving on to chapter 122 i told you it was a big text and i said to him by what angel art thou frustrated and he answered by the only ruling god that hath authority over me even to be heard 
he that is to be born of a virgin and crucified by the Jews on a cross, whom the angels and archangels worship. He doth frustrate me and enfeeble me of my great strength, which has been given me by my father Satan. And I said to him, What canst thou do? And he answered, I am able to remove mountains, to overthrow the oaths of kings. I wither trees and make their leaves fall off. And I said to him, Canst thou raise this stone and lay it for the beginning of this corner which exists in the fair plan of the temple and he said not only raise this O king but also with the help of the demon who presides over the red sea i will bring up the pillar of air and will stand it where thou wilt okay so uh we'll leave that there uh i did tell you this was all uh crazy gnostic stuff that uh i i wouldn't put uh much faith in any of this but here's the question is the important bit forget all the uh truth claims you might be uh trying to extract from it from any of that uh the the real question is where would a first century jewish scribe get the idea that solomon enlisted the help of demons to build the temple i mean how does anyone come up with that right because mm. that idea that idea is going to come from somewhere and might have an idea where it came from. See, in Second Chronicles, chapter 8, verses 7 to 8, it says, All the people who were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of Israel, from their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel had not destroyed, these Solomon drafted as forced labor, and so they are to this day. Now, obviously, when they say to this day, that doesn't mean now because the person who wrote the text back then meant that. Yes, that's right. Uh, you wouldn't believe how many people I come across who don't get that. Uh, no. anyway. <laughs> um, if we understand their descendants here as being the demonic spirits of the giant clans after their deaths, then that's how we get demonic slave labor. Okay, so I think that might have been the idea behind what's going on there in this uh, Testament of Solomon. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is true or biblical or whatever. I'm saying that the belief that it was even possible probably comes from some real experience. Perhaps there were people who were in contact with demon, uh, demonic powers that could have moved the stones at Baalbek. Leaving that aside and going back to where we started here, what, why the change in construction? Why didn't they finish the job with those massive stones at the I'm going to suggest that there was something that occurred around AD 30 on both a seismic and a spiritual level that could account for both the cracked stone and the end of megalithic construction at the site. Mm -hmm. Pick it up when we were reading uh, chapters 65 and 122 of uh, the Testament of Solomon earlier. Well, here it is in Scripture. This is Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 to 54 in the NIV. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened they were terrified and exclaimed surely 
he was the son of God. And I've got another passage from 1 Peter, chapter 3, 18 to 22. Uh, again from the NIV. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. That's uh, pretty amazing. I love it. So Jesus defeated the powers that were at work, enabling people to construct megalithic places of pagan worship by going into hell and breaking their power before he broke out of death itself. That's pretty awesome. And it makes me wonder what kind of power is available to us Christians in uh, spiritual warfare. of Solomon features all kinds of charms, incantations, the names of angels and a magic ring. All of that stuff, even if any of it might be real, is seriously dangerous. We don't know if those names belong to angels or demons or worse. We don't know the power behind so-called magical items. None of that should ever be used by anyone who truly believes that our God is who he says he is. Well, actually, there is one exception. There is one name that can be used against demons, but never take it lightly. It's the name of God. But God's name isn't some kind of magic spell. There's no power in saying Yahweh out loud. The power of God to cast out demons comes from aligning yourself with God's will. That means doing what God wants, not what you want. More than mm -hmm. that, it means changing yourself to want what God wants and to do what God wills. Mm. Now, I, I won't go into specifics here but i was just talking to someone today uh who'd reached out to me because they were experiencing uh, demonic oppression in their house this was the advice i gave uh exactly this i just think it's so important to remember what it means to act in god's name that's where you need to be in order to have authority over demons because the the most high god is the ultimate authority if you're led by the Spirit of God, you can invoke the name of God to pull rank over any power, and, and it works. I can't stress enough how critical it is to get that right, though. You don't play with Yahweh. <laughs> Absolutely. Totally agree. You don't play with Yahweh, and I like that, and it should be on a T-shirt. But seriously, how come Jesus didn't call on the name of God when he cast out demons? Ah, well, we, we don't see Jesus using that formula when he cast out demons because he is God. So he didn't need to invoke his name. He is the name. That's why the religious leaders accused him of casting out demons by the prince of demons, because they noticed that Jesus didn't invoke God's name, right? Because they have to do that. They thought Jesus was on the other team. They couldn't have been more wrong. 
holiness is key. <laughs> and by holiness, I, I don't mean piety or being sanctimonious. But being holy is to be set apart to God, devoted faithfully to him. Stay in communion with the body of the church. Repent every day. Be ready in season and out of season. Pray and listen. And you'll know when it's right to act in God's name. It's time to wrap up another episode, but if you want more, and why wouldn't you, don't forget to get yourself a copy of the Answers to Giant Questions book. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help, but a full review is obviously better and really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you've had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. We're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content in Answers to Giant Questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops that's all we have time for today we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by grave forsaken graveforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.